Welcome to Beyond the Buzz, S&P Global Ratings Sustainable Finance Podcast, where we dive into hot topics across the sustainability landscape. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Beyond the Buzz. My name is Tommy Englerth, your guest host for today. I'll be interviewing a guest, Ellie Mulholland, on the emerging, or some would argue already emerged, topic of climate change litigation. Ellie is an Australian qualified lawyer, senior associate at Minter Ellison, the largest commercial law firm in Asia Pacific, and director of the Commonwealth Climate and Law Initiative, an initiative launched by His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales in 2015 that focuses on legal research and stakeholder engagement on the intersection of climate and biodiversity risk and company and securities law. Ellie, thanks so much for joining us today. Tommy, thanks so much. It's great to be here with you. Great. Well, let's dive right in. Uh, you're, you're certainly an expert in this space. Can we, can we start from the top and, and can you give us a definition? What exactly is climate litigation? Oh, uh, don't hold me to one definition. And I think that's probably uh, opening up Pandora's box already. There <laughs> are so many definitions, different ways of defining climate litigation, what qualifies as climate litigation. And the academics, Joanna Setzer and Lisa Van Hala, say there are as many definitions as there are people writing on it. So I'm actually, I might qualify, I'm not a climate litigator myself, but I do spend a lot of time thinking about it through that nonprofit CCLI and through my law firm practice as well. Um, so I'll try and draw on um, a bit of the work of academics and the way in which they're defining it, because um, so many, as with so many areas of knowledge, uh, academics have really um, brought a rigor to this. But I'll also try and combine with some of the insights from what I see as a practicing lawyer, again, not a litigator, I'll just tell you how to avoid the risk. And also from working in that nonprofit space and talking to strategic litigants that are turning to the courts where they see a failure of governments and parliaments to act on the climate crisis. So all these different people, academics, uh, lawyers advising uh, governments and business, they're all, um, and even strategic litigants themselves, thinking about what is climate litigation. And it really depends on the framing. So the first way to frame it is whether you only include cases that expressly raise issues of climate change policy or the facts around the climate science, or whether you also extend to cases where it's motivated by the um uh, concerns over climate change issue or whether the legal argument isn't expressly framed in terms of climate change. So you might challenge a coal-fired power plant on the grounds of its broader environmental impacts, like we see in Australia. It might be the impacts on a little reptile, but we, we know that, that the strategic litigants are throwing quite a lot of money at it because, um, because the uh, climate impacts of the mine can matter so much. Or also we can look at cases where uh, the cases arise because of climate change impacts themselves, like the costs of compensation for extreme weather events like hurricanes, even if the litigation itself is not explicitly framed in terms of climate change. The second issue is whether to focus on judgments issued by courts or also include other kind of bodies like international arbitration or international tribunal or other complaints bodies, or if you include in climate litigation where it settles. Um, but most of the time we do focus on claims. We're already looking at that earlier stage. So we do, we are very interested in settlement decisions. And the third issue around framing is, well, do you only include cases with that 
pro-climate regulatory focus where they're trying to bring about um, more climate action or whether you're also bringing them by industry or individuals that are challenging the climate regulation because they're saying that it harms their own personal interests. So these are sometimes called pro and anti-climate cases. So there's a bit, well, how do we frame it and also who is defining it and why? And so some of the databases, and we've actually, if you jump on Google, there's some terrific climate litigation databases um, uh, that are hosted by some universities. So the LSE uh, Grantham Center, they have a fantastic litigation database. And in the US, the Sabin Center on Climate Change has one as well. And they have quite narrow workable definitions for what's in and out. So they say, well, it's, it's a case brought before a judicial body um, and it must raise an issue of law or fact regarding the science of climate change or climate mitigation or adaptation policies as that main or significant issue because they need something pretty workable for their databases. But I'm a lawyer and I advise on risk and also thinking about financial analysts or like S&P Global credit rating analysts trying to assess and quantify risk. And there, I think broader definitions can be useful. You don't necessarily need a clean methodology that makes it easy to decide whether a case falls inside or outside a database. Um, and in the case of climate litigation involving business or investors, I find it really useful to connect the type of climate related risks. So physical or transition risks. So there you can be defining climate litigation um, by connecting it to, does it relate to a physical risk to an entity or to an economic system before it materializes? Like, is it a failure to prepare for the foreseeable um, storms and heat events? Or is it litigation that arises once we've had that physical risk materialize and someone wants to sue for compensation? So if you've got financial analysts trying to assess and price credit risk arising from that physical risk, like a storm, it's really useful to have a broader definition of climate litigation to see that actually when I'm looking at a physical risk, I can, can go beyond that and say, well, we can end up in the courts after that. And even though they might not actually have it out in the legal arguments about whether climate change uh, increased the frequency or severity of this storm surge and, and what percentage of the storm surge was due to climate change, if it's the kind of physical risk that you're looking at, it's often useful to have a broader definition from there. Thanks, Ellie. That's that's a great, great, uh, great start to this. I uh, I think there's a lot to unpack there, and I think one of the gaps that that frequently emerges between kind of sustainable finance practitioners and and understanding uh, kind of the uh, the the legal practitioners here. Um, you know, we talked about transition and physical risk, which are terms that, that sustainable finance practitioners are already very familiar with. But, but how do those risks translate into legal theories or legal claims? Could you give us an idea of, of kind of the types of legal claims that can arise from, from either one of those and, and kind of break them out in, in layman's terms? Mm, sure. Um, so you can have, uh, and so this I'm drawing on some research that um, we did. Uh, so this was with the law firm Minter Ellison that we did for the UNEPFI, so the um, 
that was back in April and we did a report on climate litigation and, and adaptation, but it really, uh, we can draw a lot of uh, relating to the transition risks as well. And essentially where you have a physical risk or a transition risk, the courts are there and causes of action are there that there is often someone who can get sued in relation to it, either before it materialises or after it happens and there's loss to be uh, shifted. Someone want to shift that loss. So why would someone sue before uh, a physical risk? With that one, we can see actually some strategic litigation that is happening. And so uh, if someone sees a physical risk, like for example, um, we've got an, a non-profit in the US and they're looking at a uh, the oil terminals that some energy majors like Shell and, and ExxonMobil run and they're on these beautiful, pristine rivers and um, waterways. And they're looking at the climate science that says that, well, actually extreme weather events can be um, uh, made more frequent and intense because of climate change. And then they're thinking about, well, is that oil terminal protecting, you know, protecting itself from preventing um, damage, not just to the terminal, but to the waterway um, if we have these really severe storms? And so then they're actually suing in advance, not um, saying that the that the, the companies aren't taking into account the climate risks to their assets and operations before they materialize. And so that's about getting more prepared for the events before they come about. But then if the event does come about, so I'm still talking about physical risk here, if you do have a physical risk materialize, and here I've got another US example, and that is a case uh, of Stevens Ranch Wind Farm. So we had a Texas wind farm operator that was sued by um, City Energy, so the purchaser of their power. And so in February, these big polar vortex storms that hit Texas, you might remember those. And um, I'm not going to say once, was it a once in a lifetime storm? They went unprecedented as the Oh, the ubiquitous word in yes. anything to do with climate science. <laughs> Unprecedented polar vortex storms and the wind farm was knocked out and they couldn't sell the, um, it went offline and they couldn't sell the energy that they normally sell under a long-term power purchase agreement to City, but City had some obligations to on-sell it to someone else. And so here you look, what's the loss to the wind farm operator? Well, the direct loss is they couldn't sell when the price was really high and they've had to get their, I don't know, thaw out their wind turbines. I'm not quite sure what happens there, but they got them back online. But you can have climate litigation if you use a really broad sense of the word to look, well, actually what happened was the city energy sued them for the costs that they had to, that they incurred for going to the very expensive spot market and buying at those really, really, really high prices to meet their own on-sell obligations. And the reason that we can kind of think about this as being a climate litigation in relation to physical risk is because it was, do they need to be prepared for this risk? We've got a breach of contract claim. And so it's just normal contract law. Let's argue it out in the courts. But we've got this climate-related driver because the scenario in which they are, they're arguing it out in the courts is this new um, risk environment in the warming world. And so we have greater extreme weather events and it's creating a new risk environment and they're ending up in the courts. Is it uh, Was the wind farm operator 
prevented from performing by something that was outside of their control, force majeure, act of God, or um, were they supposed to prepare for these? And we had an interim decision back in uh, earlier this year, uh, I think in April or May, which is, I think, being appealed. And But the judge in that interim decision said, well, this is the kind of risk that you need to um, prepare for. You were told that uh, there's going to be more extreme weather events like these and you're going to need to winterize your turbines so it's not outside of your control. This is the kind of normal breach of contract thing there. So there's some examples in relation to physical risk. I do remember you asked me about transition risk as well. And so there we have some that same risks. The litigation can occur before the transition risk actually materializes. And so that's where we're seeing things like... Um, uh, litigation against um, investor trustees saying you're failing to take into account these transition risks that are going that are foreseeable. We don't think you're protecting your investments and assets from them. The losses haven't materialized yet, but we think that you know you need to do more to prevent yourself from suffering the portfolio suffering these financial losses from the transition risks like stranded assets and that rapid repricing of assets there as well. So we can have lit litigation beforehand, which is essentially saying, be better about your climate risk management. Uh, then also we could have litigation that happens afterwards. And often those are kind of stock drop claims. And so here we don't have a new cause of action. And that's something that's really key to understand is that not all, not many of the cases are actually brought under new climate regulations that are being enforced or something like that. Often it's just that um, old causes of action that are applying to the new facts of climate change. And so if you have, say, a loss arising from a repricing of an asset with a transition risk, so we get a stranded asset, we have a big write down and investors, if they suffer loss, they might want to look to recoup that. And so they could recoup that from um, directors or from the entity itself with that misleading disclosure claims there as well. That's super interesting, Ellie. So I think what you're saying, in, in part at least, is that as our understanding of, of client science and, and climate change grows, um, the more we're able to, or litigants are able to rather, uh, use that understanding to, to bring it into what were uh, more traditional and, and older causes of action. Uh, mm -hmm. so, so the courts and the claims are evolving with the times. Um, yeah. I mean, that's what the, the law does is it, it continues to evolve and we have very old statutory and, and common law and civil law causes of action. But the law says, what's the facts today that we need to decide where the rights and obligations and the loss and damage um, lies? Absolutely. And, and that goes back to an earlier point you made, I think, about the, 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 the word unprecedented, right? We've heard that word so many Forgive times. <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, it's a great point. I mean, we heard it just, uh, just last month in New York about the remnants of Hurricane Ida, um, mm. unprecedented rainfall that, that caused so much devastation and flooding um, and, and, and frankly brought the city to a, a bit of a halt for, for a night or two. But how does that kind of, uh, you know, by definition, something can only be unprecedented once. So how does our, <laughs> um, our growing understanding and, and kind of the forces of, of climate science come into the courtroom? Has there been any 
I guess, challenge in, in proving that climate change is real? Or are we pretty much past that in the courtroom? Yeah, I think these days we've had a lot of case. We've had enough recent decisions in Europe and in the US and in Australia, which take human induced climate change as accepted. It's going into issues of individual causation. So it's connecting defendants' emissions to the contribution that they make to the cumulative problem of climate change and then to the plaintiff's losses. That's a big one there. It's, well, I accept the climate science, but it's much more complex issues of causation that need to be proven in a scientific and legally relevant way. And then another way in which the climate science is getting into the courtroom is, as you said, unprecedented can only really happen once. But the climate science is giving us a lot more information about foreseeability. And foreseeability is a really common concept that comes up in legal actions because often whether someone is liable for something, it's often the case in a bunch of causes of actions, it's relevant whether the uh, the event and the impacts and the harms were foreseeable to the person in the, the defendant's shoes. So that can be relevant for making out the cause of action or in assessing uh, the damages. So it's a really any law student, lawyer will have their own shorthand for writing out foreseeability, reasonably foreseeable. And the climate science is really feeding into that as to what is foreseeable, what are we going to find people liable for because they haven't prevented, protected, uh, halted, stopped things that is co that cause for reasonably foreseeable loss and damage. Absolutely. And I guess are there any cases? I, I remember a, a case in uh, in German courts now with, I, I believe, a, a Peruvian uh, litigant that kind of illustrates that point. Are there any kind of concrete examples you could give of of where some of these more landmark cases are at with with proving causation? Mm, the causation issue is really interesting, and that case that you've mentioned to Yuya against RWE is one to watch and has been one to watch since it was lodged back in 2015, I think. Um, and so that was a Peruvian farmer who lives, uh, so it's Sao Luciano Lulia. Uh, he lives near a lake up in the um, beautiful glacial lake in Peru. And the lake is at risk, his town is at risk of flooding because the glacial ice is melting. Um uh, because of climate change is what uh, Saul Luya says. And so he's brought an action against a large German energy company that has a lot of coal-fired power plants. And we know that coal-fired power plants are responsible for a large proportion of emissions. And we have a study that was done, the Hedy Carbon Majors study, which was a peer-reviewed peer science that first kind of came out about 
uh, eight or 10 years ago and has since become moved into the Carbon Majors database. And it looks at historical contributions to emissions because we know that the climate impacts are caused by cumulative emissions. And so this drop in the ocean problem of, well, my emissions were only a drop in the ocean suddenly has a quantitative angle of how big a drop. And so that's being challenged in a court in Germany where RWE is, um, they're headquartered in Germany. And so this Peruvian farmer has gone to a German court and says, please pay 0.47% of the costs of me protecting my town from the glacial lake flooding. And why 0.47%? Because that's the uh, proportion, according to this the study, the proportion of uh, historical emissions since the Industrial Revolution that are attributable to this entity RWE. So it says, please pay your share of the emissions, your share of the costs based on your share of the emissions. But if anyone has gone to court or read any cases or thought about how we normally figure out legal causation in so many different types of in so many different jurisdictions and for types of claims, we normally say, well, but for the defendant's action, the plaintiff wouldn't have suffered loss. That's a really traditional causation test. And we can't say, but for uh, RWE's emissions, this Peruvian farmer would have suffered the loss because we've only got 0.47%. It might be a drop in the ocean. And so that's what the first court, the regional court in Germany, first said back uh, in 2016, I think it was. Could be getting some dates wrong, but it was about five years now. And the first court said, no, that's not the kind of legal causation we um, we recognize. But then it went on appeal to the higher court and the higher court said, yes, that is the kind of legal causation we can recognize. We can understand that contributing to the the loss and we've done that in asbestos clay cases we've done it in some other kinds of cases so it's going to go through to the evidentiary phase um, it's been put on hold i think because of covid so we're just waiting to see where how whether and how uh, the evidence will play out in terms of connecting is there an increased risk of this glacial lake flooding because of climate change and if so how much, to what extent, um, is it a, that increased risk a legally relevant, in a legally relevant way attributable to the defendant's emissions? So that's a really interesting one to watch. I think, and I could be getting this wrong, I think the claims for about 20,000 euros is really not much. And obviously a company like RWE could settle that in a heartbeat. But if you think... What would be the precedent for that if they settled and actually gave, you know, what's essentially climate damages? They're paying for the costs to adapt, to protect this town from this um, this risk. What would be the cost if you said, oh, actually, we're responsible, we'll, we'll pay? Absolutely. That's a fascinating question. And, and you know, despite... Uh kind of precedent and, and and legal precedent generally being being kind of restricted to its jurisdiction, you could imagine how um, one success somewhere could possibly yes. try to be replicated other places, no? 
Yeah. I mean, that's something when you have this global problem, global emission, global impacts, it's defining the the boundaries of where, and particularly in that forward looking, where do litigation risks lie? Who is at risk of being sued by whom for what? And when you have such global issues, you know, like climate, the climate crisis, um, it's so difficult to put your finger on where the risks are. And obviously there's some jurisdictions where um, it's easier, plaintiffs have standing to sue. It's easier for them to say, yes, court, accept my claim. I'm the kind of, I'm affected in a legally relevant way. There's some uh, courts where they have uh, different causes, some jurisdictions which have different causes of action, but it's not just that if you'd get a, a court in Germany accepting this, that claims would be limited to Germany. And so that's something that we saw um, in a in a different claim. I'm sure you've seen the the Shell case in the Netherlands. Yes. Yeah. So that was a real landmark decision earlier this year, where the court in the Netherlands ordered uh, Royal Dutch Shell to reduce its um, to change its corporate emissions policy, sorry, its emissions reduction policy, so that then across the Shell Group, they would reduce their emissions by 45% by 2030 based on a 2019 baseline across all scopes. So scope one and two was that absolute reduction obligation because they're the ones that are most in control of Shell. And scope three was a best endeavors obligation to work with their customers and end users of their products to reduce the emissions from those as well. So we've got this big decision, landmark decision where a court has essentially said, you must to a corporate, you must reduce your emissions. We've had them tell governments that before, but it was really big against a corporate. And then we have other corporates looking around saying, well, do I operate? I'm, I'm not domiciled in Shell, sorry, in the Netherlands like Shell is. Could I be taken to court in the Netherlands or could I be taken to court in the jurisdictions in which I am incorporated or operate in? Um, could a Netherlands NGO come and ask, you know, take me to court in different jurisdictions? So assessing who will be sued by whom for what is such a difficult task and um, one that will only get more complex as we see more causes of action um, and really novel claims arising. And if we start to see um, more cases like the the Shell judgment where we actually go to judgment. Absolutely. And and understanding that that Shell case is Shell's mentioned or, or, or announced that they intend to appeal the decision or have already appealed the decision. Terrific. Yeah. Thank you for the reminder. That is under appeal. Even under appeal, though, everyone's looking at it going, what, you know, what does that mean for me? And so even judgments where we have just an interim judgment or a, a judgment that's under appeal, they do have ramifications and ripples across business and investor communities as we're looking to see what will happen there. Absolutely. So I guess that begs the question, um, what, what are the implications for, for corporate directors and, and managers there, um, especially in light of the, the Shell decision? Mm. That is a really difficult one. Uh, the first thing would be that there are foreseeable implications for many companies in many jurisdictions. So the first one is to get educated for corporate directors and managers to ask their lawyers, ask their business, what does something like this mean for how we operate? 
And so it's about getting educated and inquiring what it would mean in the specific circumstances of your business um, and the jurisdiction in which you operate. Because if you don't have a look at something like this for peer companies, you know, we could say that this is the kind of red flag that raises, um, you know, an issue that should be discussed at the boardroom should be discussed by senior management. So if you don't educate yourselves as to what's going on, why are these cases being brought? Are we at risk of doing this? Should we do things to mitigate our risk of litigation? That is a really difficult one when often these omissions have occurred in the past. But there are things that you can do today to reduce the risks of being sued in relation to past omissions. Um, also, because strategic litigation uh, is always a choice. Who are they suing and why? Um, and also, what do we need to look at in terms of our emissions reductions plans going forward to make sure that we're not accruing any potential new liability as well? So if we're looking at these red flags, what does it mean in the circumstances of our business? And if uh, particularly corporate directors, and this is something that the CCLI looks at, is if directors don't look at these foreseeable and material climate risks and consider what it means as part of their risk management oversight, is the business managing this risk? What does it mean for their strategy? Do we need to um, increase our emissions reduction strategy or be subject to some strategic litigation? What does it mean for our disclosures? Uh, am I signing off on disclosures that aren't uh, disclosing some material risks, then those in many jurisdictions, corporate directors could face potential personal liability if they fall so far short of the standards of what reasonable directors need to be doing in their robust consideration of not just the physical and the transition risks to their businesses, but also the litigation and liability risks if you are one of those entities that has that particularly acute litigation and liability risk. And often that is connected to the emissions intensities of your businesses. Absolutely. I think that's another great example of how kind of traditional uh, legal norms and, and laws are, are kind of catching up with the times and, and the facts as mm. they develop. In kind of the same vein, we've been hearing a lot on the market around uh, greenwashing and the potential reputational risks associated with greenwashing, especially as you're seeing more and more governments and, and companies race to get more and more aggressive decarbonization targets and net zero targets out there. Obviously, the, the reputational risk is, is one thing. Is there any overlap between the greenwashing and, and reputational risk and, and climate litigation itself? Is there a, a legal risk that could be borne from greenwashing in addition to just that reputational risk? Yeah, spot on. Reputational risk can lead to uh, litigation risk. And that's the, the pointy end of the stick. If you uh, make claims and they're not substantiated and they are not robust, then there are circumstances in which uh, entities can be sued for those. And greenwashing, we see it in two kind of main areas. One is greenwashing in advertising. And so we had a claim brought by Client Earth, so that's the environmental charity. They brought a claim against BP, alleging there was greenwashing in their advertising, the way in which they spoke about their renewable energy business, um, when actually it was such a small proportion of their actual uh, capital expenditure and revenues that it 
the client Earth alleged it was actually misleading uh, because their vast majority of their business relates to the extraction, production and sale of fossil fuels at the time. So they brought a greenwashing advertising complaint. So it was the way in which you're talking to your stakeholders, your consumers, alleging it was misleading. And that was brought in the UK uh, to the OECD contact point in the UK. So this was... We go back to that first question, how do we define climate litigation? Well, this wasn't in a court. This was a claim uh, to a kind of an administrative body that looks at the OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises and how they should behave. And uh, the client Earth lodged that claim there. And after they lodged it, BP withdrew the advertising campaign. And so the claim didn't proceed, but the national contact point in the UK made some findings and said it was, it did have merit. And so here we've got greenwashing becoming quite a reputational risk uh, and also through to a legal risk if they were, if they were adverse, ultimately, if it were contested and there were adverse findings from that national contact point, that can um, become quite an issue for a company. I've got a more acute example of litigation risk because it happens in the courts. And that's something, that's a claim that was just lodged a few months ago in Australia. And so that is the other type of greenwashing claim and it's greenwashing in the financial filings, in the corporate documents. And at S&P Global, you would obviously pour over financial filings, be very, very familiar with these. And so this might be a little bit closer to the kind of um, climate litigation that that's the sustainable finance and um, the financial practitioners will be aware of. So you can't mis mislead in um, in your uh, corporate filings. And so we have allegations brought by a non-profit, the ACCR, against the um, oil and gas company Santos. And so they say that the disclosures that they make in their annual report about clean energy, about natural gas being a clean energy, that transition fuel claim, they say it's actually not a clean energy because it's not taking into account all of the emissions across the life cycle. And they say that the um, Santos is net zero by 2040 claims are greenwashing because they don't have an actual plan for it. They're misleading. It's not credible. It's not built on robust um, robust processes and reasonable, uh, reasonable statements that are made at the time that they're made. And so we have just normal corporate law and securities law claims uh, as they are applying to the case of greenwashing. So greenwashing can actually uh, not just form a source of reputational risk, but we're actually seeing that people can end up in the courts uh, because greenwashing is, it can be just your uh, bog standard misleading disclosure claim. No, that makes total sense. And, and I think that's a lot of food for thought. Um, I've certainly learned a lot during this conversation. Um, I, I think I'd like to leave it with, with one final question for you. It seems fair to say that the interest and the momentum in this, in this uh, field of study and, and type of litigation is, is certainly growing. Do you, what, what's the future for it? Do you think that that momentum continues to build? Uh, obviously, neither of us have a crystal ball to look through, but, uh, but it, it's an interesting question. Yeah, no, Tommy, it's a, a great question. I... I can't get into specifics, except that just as 
climate scientists know that their jobs aren't going away. And just as the transition experts um, uh, for the systems transitions that we need to go on to transition to net zero emissions economies, uh, know that they're not their jobs aren't going away in uh, transitioning our energy and transport and material systems. Lawyers' jobs in relation to climate change are also not going away. And going back to, um, I suppose, when we were tr defining and thinking about how to describe climate litigation, and we were talking about these kinds of strategic claims like the carbon majors claims, that the 20,000 euros um, or the, those kinds of strategic claims, there are strategic litigants in this area like no other. Um, there are very sophisticated. They're bringing really novel and innovative claims. They're working together, the global north, the global south, there's capacity building. So the strategic claims are absolutely not going away um, because climate is an existential risk and uh, the people are turning to the courts where they see that governments, parliaments, um, finance, investors, the business community are not doing what they should to address this existential risk. So they're asking courts to step in. But not to forget that it's not just the strategic litigation, it's also private claim litigation. So we have um, people trying to protect their private interests. They see loss and damage. We have commercial enterprises like that Stevens Ranch case that I mentioned earlier. We have loss and damage in relation to climate change with the net zero transition. We know there will be winners and losers. The potential for loss and damage is immense. And when people uh, when entities, when people suffer loss, they often look to the courts to be that risk, um, that risk shifting mechanism to allocate it, to attribute it to someone else and to claim compensation. So we'll see uh, much more private claim litigation. And also as we have more, um, as gov governments and parliaments increase their regulation in this area, when we look at things like the, the PRI talking about an inevitable policy response, I think we might have an inevitable litigation response where we will have people challenging that climate policy. There will be losers in that and they will look to the courts to try and claim compensation or to roll it back as well. So I think there's many reasons why there's a lot of jobs for um, for lawyers in the courts, but also for uh, for everyone to take the steps today to make sure that we mitigate loss, we reduce our emissions, we protect um, our infrastructure and assets and communities. Litigation, I see it so ad hoc, um, but it actually can be that reason. Looking ahead, we don't want to end up in court so we can take steps today to protect ourselves from ending up in court by protecting others that otherwise might suffer some loss. And so it's a real um, uh, driver for the why in net zero, the why in adaptation, the why we need to take these steps today. Fascinating. Thank you, Ellie. The saying goes, the only inevitable things in life are, are death and taxes, but it sounds like litigation may be a, uh, a candidate <laughs> yes. for inclusion uh, if one were to have to be. But, uh, but thank you, Ellie. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Buzz. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much, Tommy, and thanks to S&P Global. To subscribe to Beyond the Buzz or to view our analysts' research, go to spglobal.com forward slash ratings. 
Thanks for listening and tune in for our next episode.